Welcome to the podcast for Ash Wednesday, February 10th, 2016. May God use this as a blessing to you today. Let us pray. God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, for you are our rock and you are our redeemer. Amen. Well, I drink a lot of water. Uh, It's pretty much the only beverage that I consume these days. It's been that way for many years, probably since, well, going back to college. Um, It began as a necessity because when you're in college, you're trying to save as much money as you can, and water is free. So that's how it all got started. But uh, my wife, Jody, who was my girlfriend back then, was a huge influence. See, she and her family drank a lot of water. But that wasn't how I was raised. I grew up in Arizona where uh, sun tea is king. Anybody drink sun tea? I would imagine up here you can probably make it too, right? So I just remember my mom getting the big, big jar, gallon or so jar, uh, filling it up with water, throwing a bunch of tea bags in there, putting the lid on, setting it outside in the hot Arizona sun, and then it percolates all throughout the day. Well, almost every night I remember two pitchers of beverage on the table. Sun tea, which my parents loved. I didn't really care for it. I like lemonade. So my mom had a thing of lemonade for me and my two brothers and sun tea for she and my dad. Well, then we moved to the Big Island when I was a sophomore in high school. And it wasn't so easy to make sun tea in the rainforests of Volcano. Uh, So my mom adapted uh, with other options, soda, juices, that sort of thing. And And every day, we had two or three different choices to choose from. Well, what we didn't have as an option was water. You see, we lived in Volcano Village, and all of the houses in Volcano Village were on water catchment, which meant every bit of water that we needed for our house, we had to get from the rain, right? So bathing, showering, washing laundry, washing dishes, using the bathroom, cooking with, everything we needed with water, we had to get from the rain. Well, luckily, we lived in a rainforest, so it rained quite a bit. But every so often, it would, we would go through a drought, and, and then we had to be very careful with what we used our water for because we couldn't just turn on the faucet and pay a little bit more in the monthly bill, right? We, had to, we could only use what we had. Water would be used for the absolute essentials. And it was during this time that I first brought Jody home for dinner. Uh, We had been dating for a few months, but this was the first time that she actually came up to have dinner with my family in Volcano Village. And we're getting ready to to sit down for dinner. And as my mom says all the time, what would you like to drink? And then we get the drinks for each person to set up on the table. And she'd run off a list of the different beverages that we had that evening. Pepsi, lemonade, iced tea, orange juice, milk, whatever it was. Well, Jody's answer rocked our household. She said, I'll just have water. Like, you could have heard a pin drop. We all looked at my mom, who ever so carefully explained to Jody that water is so, so precious up here, uh, especially during a drought. It's too important to drink, she would say. I think the people in the Middle East, uh, both in Jesus' time and today, would understand where my mom was coming from. Water there is also uh, in short supply. Well, actually, Antelope Valley, water is in short supply. Uh, but I think the times have changed in the past 30 years, and, and we're at a different place. Drinking water is much more common. You could hardly even find bottled water back then, right? 
Welcome to a brand new sermon series that we're starting uh, during the season of Lent called Jesus and Women. So all of you that came tonight, you've got a head start on everyone else in the congregation by being a part of our Lenten series. Lent is, as Pastor Angela said, that season of preparation of uh, six weeks prior to Easter. Technically, it's 40 days Uh, And then you just skip over all of the Sundays because the early church believed that Sundays were many Easter's. And you do not uh, go through any sort of uh, self-denial. You celebrate that that the Lord has risen. And so uh, it's 40 days, not including Sunday. Lent begins today, Ash Wednesday. and, And it runs until Holy Week, which is this year at the end of March. The historic focus of Lent is to prepare one's heart and life for the power of the resurrection of Jesus. It's a time of self-examination, of repentance, of spiritual grounding. It's often been an opportunity to refocus oneself and to concentrate on what's most important about our faith life and our journey. Andre Nouwen is considered by many to be one of the great spiritual writers of modern times. He's authored over 40 books, taught at the University of Notre Dame, at Harvard and Yale, he spent the last 10 years of his life, however, with, the pe- with people with mental handicaps as pastor of Larchi Daybreak Community in Toronto, Canada. Well, his book, uh, The Sabbatical Journey, is uh, his very last book, and it chronicled the one-year sabbatical that he took. He died three weeks after turning, returning back to Daybreak in September of 1996. This is a passage from his personal journal from earlier the year that he died on today, Ash Wednesday. He writes, I'm certainly not ready for Lent yet. Christmas seems just behind us, and Lent seems an unwelcome guest. I could have used a few more weeks to get ready for this season of repentance, prayer, and preparation for the death and resurrection of Jesus. But this morning, quite a few gathered for the Eucharist. In other faith communities, that's a name used for Holy Communion. I spoke about how Jesus stressed the hidden life. Whether we give alms, pray, or fast, we were to do it in a hidden way, not to be praised by people, but to enter into closer communion with God. Lent is a time of returning to God. It's a time to confess how we keep looking for joy, peace, and satisfaction in the many people and things surrounding us without really finding what we desire. Only God can give us what we want. So we must be reconciled to God, as Paul says, and let that reconciliation be the basis of our relationship with others. Lent is a time of refocusing, of re-entering the place of truth, of reclaiming our true identity. So, here we are, friends. Only God can give us what we want or what we need. This season is a time of reclaiming our true identity as God's children. So here at Palmdale, we'll be uh, focusing specifically on a few of Jesus' interactions with significant women in the Bible. And to start off, we, we get to meet a woman that we spend a lot of time with during Advent, Mary, Jesus' mother. If you have your Bibles with you tonight or you want to grab the pew Bible in front of you, I invite you to open to the Gospel of John. It's the fourth book in the New Testament. And the book of John begins with this wonderful introduction to Jesus. But it's not from the standpoint that we would expect. It's not of a baby in a manger. No, something a bit more cosmic. Taking a few steps back. John 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him. What has come into being in him was life. And the life was the light of all people. So there you have it. That's the beginning. The beginning not only of John, but like the beginning of everything. And Jesus was there as the word. There's no birth narratives in this gospel. We go straight from this prologue to Jesus as a 30-year-old man. Later in chapter 1, Jesus interacts with John the Baptist, and then he starts calling some of his disciples. And then our reading uh, that Katie read begins at chapter 2. It's the first public miracle of Jesus, and it takes place at a wedding. Verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. Now, Cana is of no special significance at all. It isn't mentioned anywhere in the, New Te- in the Old Testament. But then again, many of the tiny settlements in the region of Galilee aren't mentioned in the Old Testament either, including Nazareth, where Jesus grew up. Yet, as you can see, Cana is located in the north of Israel. And this is Jesus' homeland. In fact, it's just nine miles north of Nazareth. Galilee is a place where in the Gospels, Jesus is almost universally received. Judea in the south is a place where Jesus is often widely rejected. So the fact that the first miracle takes place in the north, in Galilee, it's important. Now, this thing, this event took place at a wedding. Max Locato, in his book, He Still Moves Stones, talks about what a wedding in Jesus' day was like. It was, it was no small event. I mean, we have, we have grand weddings But they had major weddings. Weddings usually began with a sundown ceremony at the synagogue, and then people would leave the synagogue and begin this candlelight procession through the city, winding their way through the streets, and they would try to go by as many houses as possible so everybody could come out and and give good wishes and blessings upon the couple. And then after the couple, after the processional, though, the couple didn't go on a honeymoon. The honeymoon came to the couple. They would go home to party. They would go home to the groom's house, which would become the new house of the couple. The groom will have spent some time uh, building an addition onto his dad's and mom's home. And for close to a week, there would be gift-giving and speech-making, food-eating and wine-drinking. Now, remember I told you earlier about the importance of water on the Big Island. Well, water was also the great elixir in Bible times. No one speaks ill of water in the Middle East. At the same time, it can't be assumed that everyone in the region drank wine all the time. Wine was a cash crop like olive oil, and many a peasant was involved in the production of wine, but the poor drank very little wine, and they ate very little meat. Instead, cheese, bread, olive oil, that was the common standards, and they had water to drink. But at a wedding, everything changed. Everything was different at a wedding. A couple's parents would have scrimped and scraped for a long time to do it right. You see, at a wedding, food and drink were taken very seriously. The host honored the guests by keeping their plates full and their cups overflowing. And it was considered an insult to the guests if uh, the host ran out of food or wine. Hospitality at a wedding was sacred duty. So serious were these social customs that if they were not observed, lawsuits could be brought out by the injured parties, meaning the guests, right? If you go to a party and the wine runs out, you could sue the family for, you know, injury, that they insulted you. Verse 3. When the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. 
And Jesus said to her, woman, what concern is that to you and me? My hour has not yet come. So this is where mom comes in, right? She's at this wedding party with Jesus, and she knows this is something. They've run out of wine. Now, we don't know how many days into this week-long celebration that this happened. It, It was probably closer to the end. John only tells us that they've hit a snag, a major snag. In fact, the rabbis used to say, without wine, there is no joy. Wine was, I got an amen. There we go. (laughs) Wine was crucial. The presence of wine stated that this is a special day, and these people are special guests. So Jesus' mom is the first to notice. Aren't most mothers like that, right? They immediately notice when something has gone awry. And her heart goes out to not only the couple, but to their parents who are hosting the wedding. Now, when she mentions this to Jesus, we hear a rather curt reply. Woman, what concern is that to you and me? My hour has not yet come. And I'm wondering if Jesus is thinking that his mom is asking him to run down to the local liquor store and pick up a few more cases of wine in a box or something, right? Like, or is Jesus saying to his mom, hey, that's not my job, right? Or is there something a little bit deeper than what meets the eye. The phrase, my hour has come or has not yet come, is used at various times in John's gospel. Most notably, Jesus uses this phrase in the positive in Jerusalem during his last week of life when he was about to be crucified. His hour was that time when all would come to know who he truly was and why he was sent by God. So Jesus knows early in his ministry at this wedding, this is not that time. This is not the big reveal time when everyone should know who he is. But when mom asks, you know, right? Verse 5. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now standing there were six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to them, fill the jars with water, and they filled them to the brim. He said to them, now draw some out and take it to the chief steward. So they took it. When the steward tasted the water that had become wine and didn't know where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the steward called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first and the inferior wine after the guests have become drunk, but you, you've kept the good wine until now. So the object at hand here were these six stone water jars for Jewish rites of purification. Now, this wasn't the kind of water that people would wash their hands in before a meal. According to the laws of Moses... There were certain ritual cleansing rites that needed to take place within each household. The water in these jars then would be used for those various acts of ceremonial cleansing. And if each had 20 or 30 gallons, assuming they were mostly full, we could conceivably say there's about 150 gallons of liquid in front of them. That's a lot of wine to drink, especially when they've already been drinking how many days of that week-long party, right? And did you notice that Jesus doesn't give any special incantations? He doesn't wave his hands over the jar and speak some magic words. He simply wills the water into wine, and it does. And the servants are the only ones who know what actually happened. Now, the chief steward, who had to have been so panicked that that they ran out of wine in the middle of the party, when he tastes it, he's amazed at its quality. I mean, he knows good wine when he tastes it. That's his job, right? And this is not just good wine. It's great wine. The party is saved. The couple need not fret. Everyone came back to dancing and celebrating. 
and we get a collective thank you, Jesus, right? Verse 11. Jesus did this, the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee, and revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. It's interesting. John kind of divides his gospel into halves. The first half is all the signs that Jesus does, and the second half is his passion as he's moving to the cross, the crucifixion, and the resurrection. This was the first sign, turning water into wine. It kind of makes you stop and wonder, doesn't it? Like, really, this is the best way to start things off, Jesus? I mean, no offense, but it kind of seems more like a magic trick, doesn't it, than like, you know, revealing the Messiah to all. Where's the, like, restoring sight to the blind or the walking on water or the, uh, the raising the dead kind of signs? That would have been a little bit more powerful, right? That would have really get a good punch to the Savior of the World campaign that Jesus was embarking on, don't you think? Author Ken Geyer likes the fact that this is how Jesus chose to start things off. It wasn't in Jerusalem or Rome or Athens, but in an insignificant town nestled in an obscure corner of Galilee. It was a quiet miracle, no fanfare or theatrics, no high drama, just the mighty hand of God working silently behind the scenes in an hour of need. And it wasn't performed for himself either. It's not like Jesus was thirsty and he thought he'd whip something up, you know, to satisfy. No, he did this to satisfy the needs of others. To bring joy to the people that were there. To keep an important celebration, not only in that couple's life, but in the life of the community going. And it all started by a simple request from mom. Now, speaking of celebrations, let's go back to that for a moment. This is a wedding, right? Why might John want to show us that Jesus' first sign happened at a wedding? I think if we look at Isaiah 62, we begin to see where he was going. Verse 5, For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your builder marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. You see, the language of lovers and marriage is one of the ways that God speaks about his relationship with us, with, with humankind. Just as two people give themselves to each other in marriage, just as they make a lifelong commitment to one another, just as they become more together than who they were apart, in that same way, God wants to be with us. God wants to unite himself with us. And Jesus would become the way by which that was ultimately possible. In fact, near the end of his life, as Jesus knew that his death was looming large, he used marriage language again. John 14 In my Father's house, there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go and prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will take you to myself so that where I am, you may be also. Did you know that these were the words that every man said to his bride on the day he proposed? It began with a ceremony with with both parents there. They had prearranged, they thought this was a good thing for their son and daughter to get together, but... The, the, the groom-to-be would fill a cup of wine, and he would hand it to the woman without saying anything. And, if she, and she knew what was coming. This was like the getting down on the knee back in the olden days. When you see that cup of wine coming with both parents there, it's the, oh, my God, moment kind of thing, right? 
And she's got two choices, right? If she, even though they've arranged it, if she doesn't think this is going to work, she could just politely refuse the wine, and then the guy is really embarrassed. But if she wants to get married, she receives the cup, she drinks the wine. And then every guy would say what Jesus just said. In my father's house, there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go and prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and take you to myself so that where I am, you may be also. Because he's going to go back and build that extension onto his father's house. And then they will come and live together and that will be their dwelling place. You see, at the end of his life, Jesus used wedding language to talk about his relationship with the disciples. He may be going away for a while. They may not understand what's happening, but he will not leave them alone. He's coming back, and they will be together forever. And at the beginning of his ministry, it's a wedding where the world first sees signs of who Jesus truly is. So back to the story from John chapter 2. Mary instructs the servants, right, do whatever he tells you. Sounds like good advice for us, doesn't it? Whatever Jesus tells us to do, that's what we should be doing. The story also reminds us that Jesus came to transform the ordinary world and the ordinary water of our lives into something truly special. That we can become the best wine available. Because Jesus doesn't go for just good enough. You know, when you're drunk, it doesn't really matter what you serve. Nobody really knows anyway. No, Jesus goes for excellence. And it's all centered around a wedding. It's kind of neat to think that, at least in the Gospel of John, when God wanted to start this whole Jesus thing off, God chose a wedding with Jesus and his mom and their friends gathered to celebrate the commitment of two people and the love that bound them together. Could it be that in this first miracle, God is also saying to us, I do love you with all my heart. And so we begin this season of Lent and the six weeks that will follow. And may we have the courage to reexamine our own hearts and our lives so that we might be better prepared to embrace the true gift of the resurrection this Easter. Think of it as a love story, centuries in the making. Thanks be to God for weddings, for wine, for Jesus, for this opportunity to be together. Amen.